0: The following episode of Annals On Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org oncall. If I've convinced myself that this is a pneumonia and I start therapy and 48, 72 hours pass and the patient's not getting better, then that really makes me wonder, A, is this the right diagnosis but the wrong treatment, or B, have I just completely botched the diagnosis?
1: Today's podcast is based upon an article from the Annals of Internal Medicine in the clinic section called Community Acquired Pneumonia. It appeared in 2015 in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Joining me on this podcast today is Dr. Cyrus Askin. Cyrus is a recent chief resident in internal medicine from San Antonio, who also has been active on the podcast, The Curbsiders, and in the American College of Physicians. He's a winner of the Henry Waxman Award. Dr. Askin is now a pulmonary critical care fellow. We hope that you enjoy listening to our discussion concerning the diagnosis and treatment of community-acquired pneumonia. Cyrus, welcome to Annals on Call. Really appreciate you joining us today to discuss this very common problem of community-acquired pneumonia.
0: Dr. Center, it's my pleasure. Happy to be here.
1: Let me give you a recent story that we had. We had a gentleman who came into our service complaining of shortness of breath for about a week, and over the last 24 to 48 hours, he'd had a bunch of chills. He couldn't really say they were rigors. He had a cough that was a little bit productive and felt really bad. He came in and had a fever of 102.5, had a white count of 14,000, got a portable chest x-ray, which was unremarkable. We got a good two-view chest x-ray the next morning and went down and looked at it with radiology. And the radiologist, who's a great radiologist that we interact with, thought that perhaps there was something in the right lower lobe. The house staff had listened to him earlier in the day and hadn't heard much. We go back up and listen to him, and he has clear crackles in the right lower lobe, not in the left lower lobe. His chest X-ray is plus minus. We decide that he probably does have community-acquired pneumonia. 24 hours later, he's afebrile. He still has a lot of crackles at the right base, but he feels like going home. That is a somewhat typical patient that we see with community-acquired pneumonia. And there are a lot of things that happen in community-acquired pneumonia that I think would be worthwhile to discuss. So the article that we reviewed, the In the Clinic article, does a great job of going over many of these issues. But the first is, when you think about community-acquired pneumonia, what are the classic signs and symptoms, and how good are they in terms of you sort of narrowing down and saying, yes, it's community-acquired pneumonia, or no, I better think of something else?
0: Yeah, so I think that's a great question, a great place to start. So typically, when encountered with a patient for whom pneumonia is kind of high on the differential, really, I'm looking for cough with or without sputum production. Generally, if they've got cough, purulent sputum, that's something that's going to kind of raise my suspicions for pneumonia. A lot of times, kind of like in this patient's case, they'll also have some dyspnea, maybe some malaise. So it's funny, like we'll get called down to the ER to see patients for chest pain, let's say. And when we really dig down, it sounds like it's more of a pleuritic pain and they're actually coughing and maybe they do have some rigors and things like that that were missed in the initial history. So that is another thing I mentioned, the the rigors, there's real strong kind of shakes in the setting of fever, in the setting of diaphoresis. So those are kind of the things that I look for as I'm walking into the room. And then on exam, you mentioned some crackles. That's something that we'll often listen for. Maybe some dullness to percussion if we're going to go that route. Really, for me, as someone who's interested in pulmonary and critical care, I'm often bringing an ultrasound with me into the ER and and taking a look and seeing if I can find a consolidation. I find the sensitivity maybe a bit higher than a portable chest x-ray, for example, that's shot very quickly. So I use that really as a big add-on to my physical exam and my history as well. So really, in terms of my initial assessment of the patient and kinds of the things I'm looking for, those are the things that rise to the top of my list. Now, to get to the question of how good are they, I like to say every patient is an N of 1 to a certain degree, we have these themes, we have these heuristics that we use to approach patients and problems like community-acquired pneumonia, heart failure, etc. But really, that doesn't necessarily take into account a patient's chronic medical history, whether they're immunocompromised, are they homeless, are they in a, from a prison environment where certain bugs or certain scenarios may be more common than others. So I think that the classic signs and symptoms are important, and we do see them. And I think that the more and more of those you find in a patient, the more and more confident you be in your diagnosis. But at the end of the day, I think that all of that needs to be taken into the context of that particular patient.
1: Well, that's great, and I'm really glad you brought up the ultrasound, because you're ahead of where I am in <laughs> terms of using that for consolidation, and you sort of already answers this question, and I already sort of answered this question with the case presentation that I gave you. The patient had a history that sounded perfect for community acquired pneumonia. It was short duration. They usually have a two to three day history. And we had a physical
0: exam. We had fever. We had Y count. But the chest x ray didn't help us. Absolutely. Does that bother you? It's always interesting. So, the low lying fruit, what I remember from residency, and then occasionally we'll, we'll talk about this on rounds when I'm with the team, is kind of the idea that pneumonia needs to quote unquote fluff out. So is that person kind of volume down? Does that person have leukopenia for whatever reason? You know, they're immunocompromised and they have a pneumonia. Maybe that's why they don't have that chest x-ray finding that we would all pat ourselves on the back if we were to see that. Okay, we got that pneumonia. So I think that those are two examples of cases where a person could very well have clinical pneumonia, but just not have evidence on chest x-ray. And that doesn't even begin to discuss the potential for poor films and that sort of thing. And so I think that in my practice, if I'm seeing someone with signs and symptoms consistent with community-acquired pneumonia and no consolidation, it kind of brings up two things in my mind. One is, do I have the right diagnosis? And I know that, as I recall from, I think, a previous discussion that you participated in, whenever you get called on pneumonia, that's like your opportunity to prove that diagnosis wrong. I think that's great. And so that's one decision point, whereas the other is, okay, maybe this person does have a pneumonia. Why don't they have the consolidation? And that's when I might grab the ultrasound and see if I can find something that the x-ray didn't see. If the person who's got a little bit of a pulmonary history, a lot of comorbidities, I may actually push for a chest CT to try to catch something early. And then that doesn't even begin to touch on the discussion of procalcitonin and its utility here in 2019. So those are all sorts of things that are floating around in my head for a patient like that.
1: That's great. So I actually, in this patient, talked to the radiologist, and we actually have a radiologist who is our friend, who we go and look at x-rays with all the time, which I highly recommend everybody have a radiologist friend. Absolutely. And so I always wondered this fluffing out or blossoming chest x-ray, was that just an urban myth? That's something that internists said. So I asked him, and he said, it's absolutely true. And for the reasons you said, which was so great that a lot of times they're volume down, you give them a couple liters of fluid and all of a sudden you can see the pneumonia. And so he was not worried about that. The other thing that he stresses all the time is that
0: a portable film is totally inadequate to consider pneumonia. Absolutely. You'll often find things in the retrocardiac clear space that you're just not going to find on a PA. So
1: given all that, when do you expand the differential diagnosis? When do you go down the route that you said that you quoted me on of, okay, (laughs) they said it's commune-acquired pneumonia. Is this a chance for us to find a diagnostic error and find something else? What are the clues
0: that make you go down that road? So I think a lot of those clues can actually be elicited pretty early on. And then there's kind of the 72-hour check kind of down the road. So initially, when I see that patient and they look like they're volume overloaded, maybe they have a history of diastolic dysfunction and their chest X-ray looks, yeah, they've got infiltrates, atelectasis versus pneumonia versus pulmonary edema, maybe a little bit of a pleural effusion in there. When the picture is hazy, so to speak, I think that's when we really need to look carefully at the diagnosis of pneumonia. Atelectasis can cause people to have low-grade fevers. Obviously, viral syndromes and heart failure exacerbations can certainly coexist in a patient. And I think that in our effort to hunt for Occam's razor, sometimes we miss the reality that multiple things can and often do coexist. So that's certainly kind of my initial approach if everything's not really fitting my illness script, as you'd say, for the pneumonia. Now, I reference kind of like that 72-hour mark. So if I've convinced myself that this is a pneumonia and I start therapy and 48, 72 hours pass and the patient's not getting better, then that really makes me wonder, A, is this the right diagnosis but the wrong treatment? Or B, have I just completely botched the diagnosis? You know, does this person have PE? Is this pulmonary hemorrhage? Is there actually a lung cancer and we're dealing with an inflammatory or a post-obstructive phenomenon? Maybe they have interstitial lung disease. Those are things that I would expect to persist in the presence of appropriate antibiotics and supportive care. So that's
1: really great, and I really like your 72-hour rule. I've used an expression for a long time. If the patient's clinical course is not following what the textbook says, you're reading the wrong page in the textbook. (laughs) And the other one that I would bring up, because I see it a lot, is they went to urgent care, they got treated for community-acquired pneumonia twice, and now they're coming in and the ER says they have community-acquired pneumonia. Oh, yeah. That's not community-acquired pneumonia. There's something else going on. And I think we all see that sometimes. One antibiotic didn't work and it was a good
0: antibiotic. Think of another diagnosis. Yeah, I think so. And there's so many bugs out there, too. We see more non tuberculoid mycobacterial infections than I thought, you know, going through schooling. And that's one of those common, you know, that and kind of interstitial lung disease. Those are common pulmonary processes where people will get treated and treated and treated for quote-unquote pneumonia or quote-unquote asthma and just never get better. I guess it's diagnostic anchoring or just kind of, again, going for that low-lying fruit. But I think we really need to be very, very vigilant because we owe it to our patients. So
1: just in the last five years, things that I've seen that got admitted as community-acquired pneumonia include granulomatosis with polyangiitis, TB, pneumocystis, histoplasmosis, and heart failure. And I'm sure I'm leaving some out. Oh, I'm sure. And all of those got admitted as community-acquired pneumonia. And all of them failed your 72-hour rule. An important thing that they stress in this article, and that I stress when I work with house staff and students, is knowing who needs to be in the hospital and who doesn't. So let's talk a little bit about the CURB-65 and the Pneumonia Severity Index.
0: Yeah. So as someone who's going into critical care, I love scoring systems. We use a lot of them in the ICU to determine illness severity, to determine prognosis, whether it be for our liver patients, heart patients, lung patients, what have you. So probably two of the scoring systems I familiarized myself with early on were the CURB-65 and the PORT or the PSI. I think there are pros and cons to them, for sure. And so really, I guess a little bit of my understanding, at least having kind of researched them, is generally speaking, the PSI, which takes into account, I don't know, 15, 16 different variables, things like age and sex, of course, but then also is that person in a nursing home? Do they have altered mental status? Are they hypotensive? What's their sodium? Bunch of different variables. That is going to probably be the most specific for pneumonia in the appropriate clinical setting, or just generally someone who's sick, almost like the Apache score. It's Actually, there are some good similarities between this and the Apache score, which I think is kind of interesting. Whereas the CURB-65, first of all, has a great name, easy to remember, and really has only a few things we're looking at. You know, with the CURB-65, you're looking at the patient's age. You're looking also at their BUN, their respiratory rate, their blood pressure, and then are they confused or not. So all things that are important. And if the person's kind of five out of five, so to speak, that's obviously someone who's sick and someone who you need to be worried about. But I find that you sometimes get these onesies or twosies where you don't quite know what to do with them. And that's when I really think the PSI can be helpful because I just think it gives you more granularity on what's going on with that particular patient. And really, there have been studies that have looked at them head to head and have demonstrated just that. Both of them have been validated multiple times in different arenas. But really, my approach is, first thing, you got to see the patient. You've got to come up with your own assessment. Then I'll often do a quick CURB-65, and based upon those results, I'll then move on to the PSI and use the PSI to give me a better idea as to how sick is this patient? Is this person going to be a dispo home, an admit to OBS, an admit to my service, or am I calling the MICU fellow to come down and take a look at them?
1: Yeah, one of the things that I tell our team is if someone gets admitted and they have a very low CURB-65 or pneumonia severity index score and we think they look good the next day, we just write that in the chart and discharge them right then. And sometimes people just have to be in the hospital for a day because someone was worried and they weren't really sure. So, for example, the patient that I described at the beginning of this podcast might have been able to be taken care of without coming in the hospital, except for we weren't sure he had pneumonia. And so that was a good reason to admit them. So once you know they have pneumonia, this can help you decide how fast. And they can also give you a clue that they need to be in the ICU.
0: Absolutely. Good point that you can't just apply these to all comers and expect external validity, so to speak, in other illness processes. And you can find any number of sick people and run a CURB-65 or run a PSI and get impressive scores. So really, you got to use the right tool at the right time. Do you find cultures useful? Do you ever get urine antigen tests? So I do in the right setting. Of all the tests I get, I probably don't get urine antigen tests all that often. We do the Legionella urine antigen, so I probably get strep pneumo more than Legionella. If I've got a patient who looks sick, who's hyponatremic, who maybe has a halfway decent story, possibly like an exposure or something like that, then I would have a lower threshold to pull the trigger on Legionella. Probably do the strep pneumo antigen more often. But then otherwise, if a person does have a good cough and it's frankly purulent, I may get respiratory cultures. Obviously, the risk there is that you're just not going to get great respiratory cultures in general. They're going to have epithelial cells in them. You're going to have a lot of oral flora. So I don't hang my hat on that. I think if the person's rigoring, that's a great time to pull the trigger on blood cultures. I think those can be very useful in that setting. And then the only other tool that's kind of quote-unquote readily available would be engaging your friendly neighborhood pulmonologist to do a bronch BAL, that sort of thing. Again, more commonly in the patient that kind of fails the 72-hour test.
1: I think that's great. I really like the blood culture point. Given that we usually are not exactly sure what bug is causing the pneumonia, what is your hospital using? as initial therapy for what you think is straightforward community-acquired pneumonia?
0: Yeah, so that's a great question, and it's always a hotly debated topic, uh, particularly amongst those in the infectious disease community at our hospital. So we have a pretty robust antibiotic stewardship program, our infectious disease folks are vigilant in maintaining the antibiograms. And so really, we lean pretty heavily on the antibiograms to help guide therapy. And we have a reasonably high amount of resistance to both macrolides and to doxycycline. So I may be wrong here, but I think that overall for the outpatient treatment of community acquired pneumonia, where we're slowly, or maybe maybe not so slowly, getting away from macrolide monotherapy and kind of using maybe macrolides in conjunction with a beta-lactam, maybe a cy- like a cephalosporin or what have you. And so we'll often do that. If someone's really looking pretty good, maybe I see them in the clinic, we might do a shot of ceftriaxone and then do a macrolide for five to seven days, something like that. Alternatively, send them with something like a moxclav in addition to the macrolide. Depending on if it's the right patient, someone who maybe is a diabetic, has a couple comorbidities, we may pull the trigger on the fluoroquinolone. I'm more cautious now with that than I used to be in the past just because I think the risk of tendon rupture is very real and the risk of fluoroquinolone resistance is very real. We're already seeing that in certain populations. So kind of less inclined to go with that approach. But that's probably for the kind of mild to moderate cases what we're yeah. looking at. And then really the more severe cases, you know, when we're thinking about some more virulent bugs, I don't think you're wrong to use a piperacillin tazobactam mm-hmm. in the hospitalized setting. And I don't think you're wrong to use a vancomycin if you're worried about MRSA, particularly if the person has like a history of influenza and you're worried about that.
1: Right. But for routine community-acquired pneumonia. Sure. And the article that we're discussing was in 2015, before we had black box warnings on fluoroquinolones. And I think they were a little bit more eager to use fluoroquinolones than I am now. I'm really worried about fluoroquinolones and C. diff. I'm really worried about the effects on mental status in some of our older patients. And so I, too, like ceftriaxone, azithromycin for my hospitalized patients. But you raise a very interesting question then is what's the right duration? And that's a big antibiotic stewardship issue right now. So how do you approach that?
0: Yeah, so I think the key with this, and we see this in a lot of other pathologies, is good close follow-up. So I think that in most cases, five to seven days is probably an adequate course. And what I like about that is it's more than 72 hours. And so really at that point, if this is like a quick admission and then discharge, like the patient that you described earlier, that may be someone who I'm calling or someone on my team is calling in two to three days time after discharge to see, hey, you know, how are you doing? Are you feeling better? Are you following the clinical trajectory, I would suspect? And if that's the case, I think five to seven days is fine. I do think, though, that, you know, if you have an older patient, lots of comorbidities, maybe some pre-existing lung disease, then you may need to extend that duration to 10, 14 days. And then furthermore, I think, again, it brings up the question of, is this person having non-resolving or slowly resolving pneumonia, where you need to ask yourself, is this pneumonia or is this a pneumonia with complications? Do they have paramedic effusion? Do they have a loculated effusion or something like that? which they developed, which you weren't expecting, but is causing them to just linger and linger and not actually get better as quickly as you'd expect.
1: Yeah, We're sort of leaning at our institution with our infectious disease specialists on five days if they're stable at three days, which is mm-hmm. perfect yeah. for your 72 hours. Sure, so, yeah, that still works. And so if we discharged the gentleman that I presented first, he was actually stable at 48 hours. So we just gave him five days. Yeah, I think Uh, that's
0: great. And I think the other thing too, I alluded to this briefly, but we do use a lot of procalcitonin. I think the one place it can be really useful and does have some support for, albeit it's pretty new, it wasn't really discussed in the article we talked about, but at the 48 to 72 hour mark, checking a procal, seeing if it's detectable, if it's nil, if it's completely within normal limits, then I feel a little bit better, if not confident, pulling the plug on the antibiotics and just stopping it at that point.
1: Yeah, and I'm jealous because we can't get point-of-care procalcitonin. It's a send-out, which does me no good at all. (laughs) But I really like that idea. Why don't we wrap this up by talking about the follow-up. So someone comes in, has an abnormal chest X-ray, they clinically get better. We still might be worried, could there be something else going on? When you see them back in clinic, at what
0: point do you think it's worthwhile to get a repeat chest X-ray just to show that it's cleared up? Yeah, I think that's a great question. We talk about this a lot of times in our clinic. So for the run-of-the-mill community-acquired pneumonia that we either, you know, discharge home or maybe we admit for a day again, I don't necessarily think you need to get that chest x-ray, particularly if you have a good follow-up, you're checking them, they're resolving, maybe they have kind of the expected improving cough four to six weeks later that then kind of resolves on its own. At that point, I don't necessarily think you need to get that follow-up chest x-ray. That being said, I think that if you feel like you need to get it, for example, in older patients, patients that are smokers, patients that have other medical comorbidities, then probably somewhere in the 7 to 12 week range would be appropriate. I've seen that kind of number cited before. And then that gives you plenty of time to let those symptoms resolve. And and really, you should see a significant improvement, I think, at that point.
1: Yeah, I think that's really a good point to not expect the chest x-ray to clear before you discharge them. And you don't need a chest x-ray the next week. But no. give, it, give it some time, because it takes a while for the chest X-ray to get better. Well, Cyrus, this has been really enjoyable. I think we covered a lot of very good issues that are very relevant to anyone who's doing hospital medicine and anyone who's doing primary care, because we all see a lot of community-acquired pneumonia. I think the article did a very nice job of laying a lot of these issues out, and hopefully the discussion we've had has expanded on that. Here's your last chance to make a statement to the listeners about the most important thing that you got out of this article and thinking about this
0: topic. You know, my one real take-home point would probably be the notion that if the clinical course is not following the trajectory you would expect, that you really need to reevaluate. you really need to revisit that differential diagnosis and ask yourself the question, is this in fact pneumonia? Or if it is pneumonia, am I treating it appropriately? I think that's very important. Anchoring is something that we certainly deal with a lot in the hospital, and I think it harms our patients. So that's what I think is probably the most important takeaway for me.
1: And I love your 72-hour rule because... I think it fits the data that almost everybody's getting significantly better by 72 hours. And if they're not, you're 100% right. We need to go further. Well, thanks a lot. And I hope all the listeners have enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. Thank you, sir. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This conversation focused on several important points with respect to community-acquired pneumonia first was on diagnosis. We discussed the flaws in the inappropriate diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia, and Dr. Askin suggested a 72-hour rule. When the patient is not getting better at 72 hours, we must at least reconsider our diagnosis. We also discussed the use of clinical scoring rules to help decide whether patients are stable enough for outpatient therapy or not. We mentioned both the CURB-65 and the Pneumonia Severity Index, and both of us strongly recommend that you document this when patients are admitted to the hospital and use that as a sense of the patient being stable enough to switch to outpatient therapy. Finally, we discussed the use of antibiotics and the duration of antibiotics. The current guidelines suggest that if the patient is stable at 72 hours, they only need a total of five days of antibiotics, and we strongly recommend that practice also. We hope that this discussion of community-acquired pneumonia has helped you with the diagnosis and the treatment of this common problem in both inpatient and outpatient medicine. Thank you for listening.
0: For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.